everyone, and welcome back to the Legal Matters Podcast, brought to you by the California Association of Realtors. I'm Jana Gardner, here as always with my colleague Dana Spears. Hi, everyone. We hope you're all staying safe and healthy out there. This month, we're going to be going over the most important form updates and new laws that you need to know about. We've got a lot to cover, so let's get right into it. So for our episode today, as we mentioned, we are going to be talking about the new laws and some of the new forms or most updated forms that are the most important for you to know about and that we've already been getting the most number of calls on the hotline about these laws and these forms. So we want to make sure that you're ahead of the game and give you a rundown of everything you need to know about some of these hot topics. Why don't you start us off on that, Janet, and let us know what those are. Absolutely. So the first topic Um, that I want to make sure everyone's aware of is the new home hardening law and disclosure form that goes along with it. So I'm sure everyone's heard of this by now, new home hardening law, went into effect in January 1st. And one of the first questions I always get is, well, what is home hardening? What does that even Mm -hmm. mean? This was something I wasn't familiar with, I have to admit. (laughs) I don't think anyone was familiar with that. Right. So, but as as everyone is more than aware, um, California has a real wildfire epidemic the past few years. It's becoming just a common cycle. Mm -hmm. And so there's new laws going into effect, new requirements to try to limit the damage of wildfires in our communities. And home hardening is one of those steps that can be taken. So home hardening is a series of retrofits um, and fireproofing actions that can be taken on a house to limit the risk of susceptibility to wildfire. So Cal Fire, the state fire agency, urges all homeowners, uh, especially those within fire hazard zones, to make these suggested for now home hardening retrofits. And the main reason for that, and this is something that I just learned, is that flying embers from a wildfire can destroy a home up to a mile away from the fire. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, that's how it can jump and and move so quickly is just a Mm. one spark, one ember from the fire can travel a mile and light a house on fire that far away. Mm -hmm. So um, because of that, there are these steps you can take called home hardening that will protect the home and and limit the likelihood that it catches on fire. Um, Just to give you a couple of examples, I'm not going to go through them all, but, you know, replacing a wood or shingle roof with a fire resistant material, covering vents with mesh. Um, A lot of these things too, they're really about preventing flammable materials from just hanging out on the property. So covering vents, covering um, drains so that dry leaves or bird's nests don't get in there. That, that's what a lot of this boils down to. Um, also has to do with updating the windows so that they're dual paned or tempered glass and making sure that there's not combustible materials on or around attached decks. So there's all kinds of um, elements of home hardening. Mm-hmm. So. All of that being said, what does this new law actually require? Well, this new law is a, is a disclosure requirement. It's not a requirement at this time to actually go out and do any of these things. Oh, the so they don't have to put up a new roof or right. actually do all of that stuff. Okay. Exactly. I think that's the first thing to keep in mind and to sort of let your sellers know who might be a little bit alarmed that you do not have to go out and make retrofits, but... It is a disclosure requirement to disclose if the property has any of these vulnerabilities or features like a wood or shingle roof that could make it more susceptible to fire. So 
This new disclosure requirement went into effect on January 1st, and it applies to generally residential one to four unit properties mm -hmm. that are built before 2010 and located within a high or very high hazard fire severity zone. And the reason, just so everybody knows that this 2010 year is in there is because starting in 2010, these sorts of features were a required part of building codes. Oh, so yeah, if your house is built after 2010, you probably already have these features. So but, you have to meet all three of those requirements, right? Not just one of these, yes. one or the other, right? Great okay. question. Yeah, all of those things. So it has to be, first has to be residential one to four, then it has to be located within a high or very high fire hazard severity zone, and it has to be built before 2010. Okay. And then even with all of that, this law, um, when it was enacted, it was made a part of the existing TDS law um, in the same part of the civil code. So that means that it also has the same exemptions as the TDS. So certain sellers will be exempt from this law if they if it's a probate sale, an REO or bank-owned transaction, mm -hmm. bankruptcy, or you know certain trustees. Basically, if your seller is exempt from the TDS, they're also exempt from this. Mm -hmm. um, but if they're providing a TDS, then you have to do the next step and say, well, what year was it built? And is it within one of these fire hazard zones? Mm -hmm. If all of those things are true, then you will make sure the seller provides this disclosure. And the, the contents of the disclosure itself is really two main elements. It has a required general notice about home hardening that just says, hey, buyer, this property is in a fire zone and it might be vulnerable. You should consider home hardening. Hmm. And it also asks the seller to answer certain questions, you know, disclosing the existence of these vulnerable features. But again, a key piece of advice for the seller here or something to maybe alleviate some of their stress about this is that just like the TDS and the SPQ, for example, this disclosure is based on the seller's actual knowledge. Hmm. So they're asking seller, are you aware of any of these vulnerabilities, uh, you know, fire risks present on the property? Right. So they don't have to run out and go, oh my goodness, yeah. what is that? Yeah. Yeah. They don't, don't have to get into the chimney. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they, they do not have to actually go and investigate features in the property. And some of these will be easier, you know, the, the roof one, for example, that they probably know whether or not they have a wood roof or a different kind, right. you know, they may know whether they have single paint or double paint windows, but some of the other questions they very well may not know, you know, unless it has come up in their ownership for some reason. And so it asks seller, are you aware of any of these features? And the seller only has to check the boxes if they are actually aware. So how there's two main more questions I want to address. The first is, well, then how does the seller comply? They use the new form. It's CAR form HHDA, Home Fire Hardening Disclosure and Advisory. Hmm. That's the form the seller can use to make this disclosure. And that's in zip um, forms, right? It is live and available for you right now. Um, one of the questions that comes up and one of the things that is mentioned on this form is even if the property is not located in one of these fire zones, the seller can always still choose to provide this disclosure, mm -hmm. um, you know, especially if the property is located in a mountainous area or, a, you know, with a lot of grass or a lot of trees, or they just know about that there are fire risks. Mm -hmm. Seller can always choose to provide this just in the interest of full disclosure material fact. Um, but it's only required if all of those conditions are met. And then the final point to talk about 
is the number one question I think we've gotten, at least I've gotten on the hotline since this law went into effect is, well, how do I know, or how does a seller know if the property is located in one of these fire zones, right? Mm-hmm. Like how, how do you, you know, how do I know if the property is located in a high or very high fire hazard severity zone? Well, the easiest way to make that determination is to start by looking at the NHD statement. You know, look at you know, the natural hazard uh, zone reports and the natural hazard disclosure statement list out if the property is located in certain uh, natural hazard zones and two of those are related to fire. If those boxes are checked, then it is safe to presume that the property is located in one of these fire zones and the disclosure should be provided. Hmm. Now, one of the boxes actually asks specifically about being in a very high fire severity zone. Obviously, if that box is checked, yes, slam dunk, you know the property right. falls under this requirement. The other checkbox asks about if the property is located in a wildland state fire responsibility area. And that one could be checked, yes, if the property is located in a very high, high or moderate fire severity zone. So there's mm. always an off chance that it may be slightly overbroad. One our advice always remains when in doubt, disclose. Right. Um, especially since it's based on seller's knowledge. If, you know, if you err on the side of caution and go ahead and provide it even a moderate fire zone, not really a downside in that situation. Mm-hmm. But if your seller wants to know with absolute certainty what zone they're in and whether or not this law applies to them, they have two other options. One, you can reach out directly to the NHD company and see if uh, one of the people who works for the actual natural hazard disclosure company can assist you and the seller to determine the actual specific fire zone the property is located in. And then also the Cal Fire organization has a website that they've put up. Um, You can look for it online. I'll put a link to it in the podcast when we post this, Mm -hmm. but there's a link you can go to where the seller can pull up a map. My final piece of advice on that is you as an agent or a broker never want to be making that determination and telling, you know, interpreting a map and telling the seller, (laughs) you're in this fire zone. You can just offer these options to the seller as guidance and as um, tools they can use to make the determination themselves. Mm -hmm. So that's basically it on the HHDA. Um, Hopefully, you know, we're getting, we're getting into March here. So hopefully people are starting to get used to it. But whenever there's a new disclosure form like this, it definitely takes a little bit of getting used to. (laughs) Yeah. Right. So another new form, well, kind of new, this one has been available for a while since last October, but it is still pretty new to everyone. And that's the form FHDA or Fair Housing Discrimination Advisory. Now, this form is attached to a vast majority of our purchase and listing agreements, as well as landlord-tenant agreements. And I think, what, it's something like 29 or 30 forms, Jenna? Something like yeah, that. Yeah, it, that sounds about right. It's, it's wow. quite a few, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so there's, it's, it's out there. You'll see it generate when you bring up any of those forms for your transaction. And the form does not contain or impose a new law. It just makes everyone aware of fair housing laws so that you can more easily keep in compliance with them and help your clients to do so. Now, the form gives best practices and talks about which behaviors are encouraged and discouraged with respect to fair housing laws. It can be used by brokers and agents 
as well as shared with your client to help navigate the transaction in a fair manner and in compliance with law. It's interesting how often clients will ask you to break these rules and, you know, unknowingly, yeah. right? And yeah. we, we get calls all the time, people saying, oh, can I do this or that? And it, it, sometimes it is, you know, kind of questionable, you know, it's something that you might really not be sure of. So this form is really pretty comprehensive in answering some of those questions and um, helping you not break rules that you might do without realizing you're doing so. Right. So I, I think that's a really good point is that it really, it, it's a tool you can use. Right. So when your client is asking you something, you can point them back to this and say, well, you know, remember there's certain rules we have to follow when we are listing, selling, leasing out a property. And, exactly. you know, hopefully it can be used to keep people on the right side of some of these tricky lines. Exactly. And that's, again, you read it yourself and then share it with your client to read so that they really understand and aren't asking you to do things that are, you know, going over the line. And it also includes a section on so-called love letters. And that's those Mm -hmm. letters that you might write to a seller about your buyer and their circumstances and family, etc. And those letters can at times contain information that's not in compliance with fair housing rules or may just cause unintended bias. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the form really highlight, you know, those issues and um, gives you other factors to consider when preparing and providing those love letters if you're going to do so. Right. Yeah, that's definitely, I would say, the hottest topic um, currently when it comes to fair housing and, and really mm-hmm. this form. Definitely, we get calls, I think, from both sides, from, you know, buyer's agents who really want to write these letters or who feel pressured to and listing agents who, like to get them or ones who are very uncomfortable getting them. And what the form I think highlights is it's not like they're illegal on their own. They right. just carry with them certain risks, depending on the kind mm-hmm. of information, frankly, the kind of information that typically goes into these letters, it can inadvertently put everybody into a tough spot, fair housing right. wise, because now you're disclosing all this protected status information. And so it's unintentional. It's, you know, completely unintentional, but yeah. So this helps really bring it into focus so that you can Mm -hmm. take a look at that, you know, while preparing these letters or before preparing these letters, you know, so that you can do a good job on that. Mm -hmm. Right. Absolutely. So um, the next two forms I'm going to talk about are not new forms, but revised forms. And they've been revised to make things a little easier, to make to shorten up the form in cases, and that is the case with the RCJC, the Rent Cap and Just Cause Addenda. And form RCJC is the same form that became effective in January 2020 and was originally issued to comply with the Tenant Protection Act. That act, you might recall, basically implemented statewide rent control which limits the amount landlords can increase rents and requires landlords to provide one of several predefined reasons for terminating a tenancy without cause. Mm -hmm. The Tenant Protection Act applies to specific structures and exempts certain building types, including but not limited to single family properties and condos if they're not owned by a corporation or a real estate investment trust or REIT. And also new construction housing that has been issued a certificate of occupancy within the previous 15 years. And owner occupied duplexes where the owner occupies one of the units as his or her primary residence at the beginning of the tenancy, 
so long as the owner continues in occupancy. Mm -hmm. But to obtain the exemption, landlords must provide form RCJC. Mm -hmm. And they have to give it to all tenants, but especially those in exempt structures, it's quite important because you need to advise tenants of the exemption in order to obtain the exemption. So it's very important that you do it, but it, right. it is for all landlords to do multi-dwelling it, units. Ex- and, exactly. And you have to give it whether the property is subject to the law or whether it's exempt from the law. Exactly. You only get your exemption if you give the form to tell the tenant that the property is exempt. So oh, right. Yeah, and explaining be- the Tenant Protection Act to them. So that's exactly. The revised form is a shortened notice that moves the exemption checkbox to the front page. And that's the box that landlords have to check to indicate their exemption status. So it's right there on the front page, easy to find. And just check that before you give it to your tenants in order to gain that exemption. The revised form also made rent control calculations a little easier. Mm -hmm. Um, The rent controls calculated using the formula 5% plus CPI, where CPI is the consumer price index for the county in which the property is located. And of course that applies to those properties that are not exempt. So, you know, that's when you would need that calculation. And the new form RCJC clarifies the CPI calculations, making it easy for landlords to determine the proper increase. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now note that this form generates automatically with all car leases. So you don't have to remember to pull it up separately. And finally, keep in mind that there is a Q&A at car.org for this form that you can read for further information on the RCJC and its underlying law, which is AB 1482. Mm -hmm. And one of the highlights of that Q&A is it actually has a chart in it that does the CPI calculation for you and tells you, depending on which county the property is located in, what the current allowable rent increase is, which is one of the most requested questions I think I get because it's hard even even with the simplified uh, way they set it up you still have to look at these charts and these calendars and, and figure out what the exactly. the actual CPI is so thankfully car.org our Q&A on if you just do AB 1482 you can go and, and see the current allowable rent increase yeah and I get that question so much I happen to know it's question 11 on that it community. is, it is so question you can, Yeah, you can scroll right down to it and take a look in for your county what the mm-hmm. CPI is. One final note on the RCJC form. We spent some time talking about certain properties like single family residences being exempt from these rules, and they are still exempt from the rent cap rules, but mm-hmm. many of you are probably aware of something called the COVID-19 Tenant Relief Act, which was passed last fall and recently extended that has expanded the just cause termination provisions to all properties. So for certain properties like single family residences, they're exempt from, you know, they're exempt from this law, Mm -hmm. but there is just keep in mind, there is currently this other law hanging out there that has restricted people's, um, you know, ability to terminate tenants, even if they've done everything properly with the RCJC form. So just short term, keep that in mind for now. Um, If you have an owner who has questions, or if you are an owner looking to figure out an issue with a tenant. So keep in mind that the owner of a single family residence or condo is still exempt from the rent cap restrictions and could potentially raise the rent by more than 5% plus CPI but they would be required to provide a just cause reason for terminating any tenants for the time being. Okay. So um, another revised form 
that I want to tell you about is the SFLS, which is the square footage and lot size addenda. Now we get daily calls on the hotline concerning the issue of square footage and lot size disclosure. Generally, agents are concerned because they have numerous square footages from numerous sources that they have with maybe appraisers and tax records. And sometimes sellers eyeball it or brokers <laughs> do and take yeah. measurements. You have uh, blueprints, all kinds of things where sources you know, for square footage can come from and lot sizes. Mm -hmm. and you know, that can be concerning. Which one to use? Which one do I actually disclose? Our advice, disclose them all. Um, and that's where the, this form, SFLS, comes in. The form is very relevant and helpful where you have numerous sources for square footage or lot sizes, and you can disclose all of it on this form. All of your lot sizes, all of your square footages, and their sources. And you do it line by line so that your um, lot sizes and square footages correspond with the source that they came from. And it also includes advisory language for clients. Um, sellers signing represent that they are disclosing all square footages and lot sizes that they are aware of. And while buyer's signature merely acknowledges receipt and that he's read and understood the document, the form also advises buyers to do their own due diligence and have surveys or measurements made on their own and advises them that brokers and sellers are not aware if any of the numbers that they have provided are accurate and or correct. Basically, this form lets both the buyer and the seller understand how important this issue is and also allows you to disclose all of the various lot sizes and square footages that you might have. Because it includes this advisory language, the form can also be used by sellers, even if they only have one number to disclose. Mm -hmm. So let's say you just have one lot size. Well, you can still use this form. You put that one lot size on with the, its corresponding source. And at the same time, you're disclosing that to your buyer. You can give them all of the other important information that this form provides, which is, you know, issues basically surrounding square footage and lot size. For example, do your due diligence. We're not sure what, you know, this is and you need to do your own measurements, et cetera. And that's really important to some buyers um, that want to ensure that they have this correct square footage, either for reasons pertaining to their use of the property or the price per foot that they're paying. Right. So, absolutely. All, yeah. all, say all buyers, you know, they, they want to know that they're paying what they think the property is worth and they're not mm -hmm. getting shortchanged. But I think the other point you highlighted is really is really important to remember as well. Some buyers purchase properties and specific plans in mind. Maybe yeah. they want a certain lot size because they want to do a lot split or, or build a second unit, or they need a certain amount of square footage for you know, permit related reasons. And so it's really, really important whether you're representing a buyer or you're the seller or the listing agent to you know, be super transparent about any square footage or lot size issues. And then also just to make sure buyers put on notice that they have an obligation to do their due diligence too, if this is going to be a major concern for them. Right. And in that way, this form serves as a really good risk management exactly. tool for both the seller and the broker. Exactly. Using the risks that normally are associated with this disclosure of both mm -hmm. square footage and lot sizes. And yep. really, that's all there is to this form. It's pretty simple, but mm -hmm. really yeah, but important. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's a really simple form that I think is just really, really important. So I hope people are um, 
getting some use out of it and hopefully incorporating it as, as part of their, their transactions and their disclosure packages. So final topic we want to talk about today before we wrap up is just a couple of new laws that went into effect in January that I've gotten some questions about on the hotline and that I think are worth mentioning in case they come up in any of your transactions or in your practice. And the first of those has to do with some new regulations on PACE loans. And I'm sure if any of you have ever been in a transaction on either side where there's a PACE lien on the property because the homeowner, you know, got a PACE loan to finance something, um, it can be a real headache when it comes to selling the property. These sorts of liens have this super kind of priority um, and it can be almost impossible to clear them and either you got to have a cash buyer who will take it subject to this lien because the lender is not going to allow it. It can be really, really tricky. And unfortunately, many homeowners don't realize these issues when they get the loan. They get the loan. It mm-hmm. seems like a good deal. And they have no idea what it will do to their title or the marketability of their property. Mm-hmm. So the good news is um, over the past couple of years, there's been some heightened tension to this. And there's been new laws and new regulations put in place to try to limit any abusive practices and protect homeowners and future sellers. And one of those new laws is that there is now a requirement that the PACE disclosures, which are the disclosures that actually tell them, here's, you know, we're going to put a lien on your property and that's what it's going to mean for you, now have to be disclosed to owners in writing, on paper, not in fine print, no smaller than 12 point type, a written paper disclosure. Um, And if they want to opt out of that written paper disclosure and receive it electronically, they have to do that in writing. So that has to be in writing also. Okay, Exactly. So it's just a way to make sure that it's not just provided to them, you know, digitally click, click, click. They don't see what they're getting. It's really to put these disclosures in front of them in a way that's hard to ignore to hopefully help homeowners make more informed decisions and not get in over their head with some of these liens that could really be a serious impediment to a transaction down the line. It's making it really evident what they're getting themselves into. Exactly. Exactly. And so that way, you know, if this is something that they they still want to do, fantastic. They can make that choice, but it's all about making an informed decision, um, which is the most important thing. Exactly. So the last new law I wanted to highlight for you all today is one that I've definitely gotten a lot of calls on the, uh, the hotline about this, and it has to do with the ability of an HOA to restrict rentals within a common interest development within an HOA community. Oh, yeah. So, right. This is a really hot topic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then people, they want to buy a property in a condo building or another common interest development, and they think they're going to use it as a rental. And then they find out that there's these super rent restrictions. And so what the legislature did is they passed this law that says, okay, HOAs, you can have a restriction on how many units or how many properties in your common interest development can be rented out, but you cannot limit it to fewer than 25% of -hmm. the properties. So you can't say only 10% of the properties can be rentals. It has to be at least 25%. It can be more. You could allow half of them or Mm -hmm. all of them, (laughs) but 25% (laughs) is the uh, most restrictive that an HOA can be when it comes to restricting rentals in the property. Mm -hmm. Um, And 
there's also some language in this law that just generally says that HOAs cannot place unreasonable restrictions on an owner's ability to rent the property. So, mm-hmm. you know, which is pretty vague, but, you know, I've, I've been hearing about HOAs doing pretty interesting, <laughs> interesting yeah. to put it mildly. Creative. creative. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. With the restrictions. And so, of course, you have a client, whether they're selling or buying or they're just an owner, and they have questions about something that they think is not a reasonable restriction, obviously advise them to run the CCNRs, run the rules by an attorney to sort of figure out what their options are. But the whole point is to allow people a little bit more freedom to choose to rent out their property and make their properties available as rentals if that is something they want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, two caveats to this law. One is they can still fully limit vacation rentals or Airbnbs, short-term mm, rentals. Yeah. So they can have a total prohibition on using the property for that rentals of, you know, less than 30 days. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> this is really about sort of more traditional leasing. Um, right. they, they can, they can have a total prohibition on Airbnb or using the property as a vacation rental. Right. So and it's then, for primary residents. Exactly. So actually, yeah, renting it out for someone to actually occupy right. not short-term vacation rental style. Um, and then just keep in mind, the law is in effect now. So even if you, there's an HOA that has a overly restrictive rule in their CCNRs, that, that rule is basically invalid as of right now. They, they cannot enforce a limitation of more than 25%. They do have a grace period until the end of this year to actually update the HOA documents so that they are in compliance, mm-hmm. but the law is in effect right now. So, so no grandfathering in of- right, Exactly, no grandfathering in. They, they have to modify their documents and they are bound by these rules. And so a little bit more flexibility there for property owners in these common interest developments who may want to use them as rentals or investments or what they gotta do. Right. More options. That's great. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And that, that pretty much wraps it up for this time, right? I think that's it. I think we covered everything. All right. So this wraps up another episode of the Legal Matters Podcast. Thanks to all of you for listening. We hope that you have enjoyed our episodes so far. If you have enjoyed them, the best way to make sure you never miss an episode is by subscribing to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And while you are there, feel free to leave us a review and maybe even a five-star rating. Those reviews and ratings can help other folks find the show. You can also reach out to us here at the podcast directly by emailing us at legalpodcast@car.org. Finally, don't forget about all of the ways CAR Member Legal can help you stay in business and stay out of trouble. Of course, CAR members can call the legal hotline with any questions or issues at 213-739-8282, Monday through Friday, 9 to 6, and Saturday, 10 to 2, for transactional questions. All of our other informational and educational materials can also be found at car.org under the risk management section. Head over there to check out our Q&As, quick guides, webinars, and more. Talk to you next month.